Welcome to Bible Center Church, and thank you for joining us for this week's podcast. We pray the Lord speaks to you as you hear His Word today. If you would take your Bible or your Bible app and open with me to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 14, Romans chapter 14 and 15. And while you're turning there, I want to welcome you, those of you who call Bible Center Church your home. Welcome back. It's good to see familiar faces come back week after week. And then it's also good for those of you who are new. I'm Matt. I'm the lead pastor here. I look forward to getting to know you. I'll be out under the awning after the service. Would love to meet you. Today, I want to tell you about my camping trip. Last week, as you remember, uh, I mentioned that Caden and I were going to go on a camping trip. Here's a picture of Caden and me. We're up here near Cheap Mountain Club at the Overlook where you can just see, see for miles in the mountains of Virginia. I was so excited. I shared with you, if you were here last Sunday, that right after the service, we were going to go home and pack up and head to Randolph County. And in my mind, I envisioned our camping trip being something like this. I pictured us sitting around the fire playing the Amazing Grace, like Caleb plays Amazing Grace. I don't even play the guitar, but it was in my vision. I'm playing the guitar, singing Amazing Grace. I pictured us, you know, uh, the deer, herd of deer, a flock of turkeys coming by, the babbling brook, me drinking my coffee in the mountain mist of the morning. I pictured, it was this it was utopian vision of how this was going to go. Well, it didn't quite go nearly like that. I'll tell you how it went. So uh, we left the service last Sunday, went home and changed, got our stuff. I would have forgotten about 30 things if Sarah hadn't thrown them in the truck, thankfully, at the last minute. We head to Randolph County, and I knew generally where I wanted to go, but again, I'm not a camper. I've only been camping like two or three times in my entire life. My tent was still in the box. I had some supplies from Cabela's because they said you need supplies, and all of them were in the box, and headed up to the mountains. So we went to Cheat Mountain Lodge, realized that that was private property, so we didn't want to camp near there. We crossed the river at the bridge and went up Schaefer's Fork about 10 miles. Now, I hadn't Googled this location until after the camping trip, but I've since learned that we went up 10 miles. We were only about two miles from the dead end of this gravel road, and it dead ends in the Snowshoe Mountain, right near the town of Spruce. I did know that we were climbing an elevation because we were going up, up, up the river. Well, we get there, we set up tent. Here's a picture of our camp. It's more like glamping, not so much camping, uh, but we're sleeping in the bed of the truck and we have an awning and a fire and, and uh, a kayak. It was a beautiful spot, beautiful spot. Well, that evening we noticed it started getting a little bit cooler. Now, I was born and raised in West Virginia, but here in Southern West Virginia, I'm not as familiar with the mountain elevations. And so we were wearing shorts and T-shirts and to be wise, we brought an extra change of shorts and t-shirt just in case we got wet, but that's all the clothes we had. And it started getting cold. So we, I said, buddy, let's get in the bed of the truck. Let's get warm. And so we got in the bed of the truck and I took my shoes off because no shoes are allowed in the, in the tent. And we, I tied my shoes over the awning here, uh, rail of the tent, crawled in and I got in my nice Coleman sleeping bag. He got in his R2-D2 sleeping bag. And as we're going to sleep, he said, hey, dad, he said, what if we switch sleeping bags? And I was like, sure, it's our first camping trip as father and son, why not? I'm not too proud to sleep in an R2-D2 sleeping bag. And so I said yes before I had really considered the ramifications. So this R2-D2 sleeping bag comes up about right here, right? And I'm wearing a t-shirt. So he nestles in his Coleman sleeping bag and I'm like, well, I'll just take one for the team. And I fall asleep. What well, 2.45 that morning, I'll wake up colder than I think I've ever been in my life. 
Now, I want to be transparent with you. Sometimes I exaggerate. Jesus is transforming me. I'm working on that. I want to speak truth always. Don't exaggerate. But I can't recall a time in my life when I've been this cold. My face felt frozen. Now, I don't know exactly how cold it was, but if there were some friends that camped not far from me that said that they were in a 42 degrees temperature that morning. That means the temperature dropped from 82 to 42 from here in Charleston up at that elevation overnight. And I'm in shorts and a t-shirt. And so I wake up because he's shivering and I'm like, why are you shivering? You got a Col- my Coleman sleeping bag and I'm kind of coveting, you know, right now. And, and, and I realized that when I fell asleep, he got creative and unzipped the entire thing and wasn't even in it. And so 2.45 in the morning, I have a flashlight in my teeth trying to put the zippers together. And if you've ever tried to put two zippers together, it's like negotiating a terrorist contract. It's nearly impossible. I finally got it together. I'm getting settled. I'm snuggling underneath his Coleman sleeping bag. And he says, hey, dad, what? I need my fuzzy socks. Well, I knew his fuzzy socks were in the truck. And so, all right, I'm going to be a good dad. And I unzip the tent and I go out and get his, going out to get his fuzzy socks. But I have to put on my shoes first. And what I've learned is that I've tied the knot so tight, them hanging around the rail, that I couldn't untie them to put them on. So I did what any dad knows to do. I took my pocket knife and just cut the string and I go around to the truck and get his fuzzy socks. You can't make this stuff up. I crawl back into the tent. I'm getting settled in my R2-D2 sleeping bag underneath his Coleman sleeping bag. And he, he says one more thing. This is, I didn't lose it, but Jesus took the wheel. I said, he said, daddy, I need to go potty. Of course you need to go potty. And so I took him out again. He's wearing his fuzzy socks so he can't stand on the ground. So I stand him on the cooler and I'll not tell you what happened after that. But then we got back into the tent and fell asleep. At 6 a.m., I wake up again. I am freezing. I like, I am not going back to sleep. And so I quietly crawl out of the tent and I'm gonna do what mountain men do. I am gonna build a fire, right? I'm really gonna be, I brought like 14 fire starters and two of those lighters, man, I am so roughing it. But I realized I had burnt all my firewood the night before except one log. Now I'm losing body heat at this point. Like I can see heat rolling off of me. And so I did the only thing I knew to do. I took a life jacket and put a life jacket on over top of my shorts and t-shirt. So your senior pastor is running around Randolph County, 42 degrees in a life jacket at 6 a.m. trying to find wood. I've seen those movies like The Revenant where like they crawl on a horse or a bear. I'm like looking around for bears, brother. I just wanna find something to crawl in and get warm. The moral of the story, and believe it or not, the story does have a moral, it's this. In life, nothing turns out quite as we imagine. According to Solomon, that's true with all of life, right? We, we build up this image of how something is going to go. And Solomon says it never turns out. That's just the, that's part of life in a fallen world. But it's definitely part of our picture of unity. When we talk about unity, all of us have this vision of how unity should go in our homes, in our churches, with our friends. We have this picture of how it should go, but it never goes that way because of our fallenness and the fallenness, brokenness of the world. And so I'll ask you this morning to keep an open heart and an open mind. Ask the Lord to show you something in your heart that that you can use to grow and be transformed more into the image of Jesus. Let's face it, our world is more divisive than it's ever been in most of our lifetimes. But my concern is not with the world, but my concern is with the church. 
And my concern is that the division has seeped into the church, into the hearts of Christians in a way that I don't recall ever seeing it before. And so today I wanna preach a message entitled How to Agree and Disagree Agreeably. Here's the main point today. Here's the main point. Unity in the church is so important that Jesus died for it. Unity in the church is so important that Jesus died for it. If you wanna take notes, you can. It's also on the app or on biblecenterchurch.com. But this is the main point. And we're not look up all the scriptures in your notes, but we're gonna look up just a few. John chapter 17 really sums this truth up well. John 17, one says, after Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you've given him. Now this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one even as we are one. Jesus prayed this shortly before going to the cross. His desire, and we see it again in Colossians 1 and Ephesians 1, his desire was to bring unity to his family. Unity in the church is so important that Jesus died for it. Now you think about the gospel story. Really the gospel story is a story of unity, disunity, and unity restored. If you're gonna sum up the gospel, unity, disunity, and unity restored. You say, how do you get that? Well, think about the way God created. God creates. When God created the world, he created the world in perfect shalom, perfect harmony, perfect unity. But sin broke the world. Adam and Eve, their sin, their choices. We also find that that sinful nature has been passed down to us. We're broken on the inside. Everything about us, while it resembles God and has the image of God, we are all broken by sin. But sin has also broken nature. It's broken the church. It's broken the cosmos. Really everything is experiences disunity because of the brokenness of sin. But thankfully, Jesus came to save. Jesus came to save. He came on a rescue mission to live the perfect life you and I could never live. He died the death to make the payment on the cross that you and I could never pay. He, he, three days later, rises from the grave, 40 days later, ascends back into heaven, and he stands ready to save. Romans 10, 13, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But this salvation isn't just something that gets us into heaven. It leads us to a transformation. It's a transformation that brings us back to harmony, brings us back to unity with ourselves, with one another, and ultimately one day with creation itself. Thankfully, we have unity with God and he invites us into unity with one another. The gospel is what unites the church. We're not a people who share the same history, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, or political position. That's not why Jesus died on the cross. What we have most in common as the children of God is the gospel of God. I was having coffee this week with a friend at Panera and he just mentioned how diverse the entire church is. 
It's like our church is so diverse. It's beautiful though. Because you realize we have nothing hardly in common. You have hardly, very little in common with the people sitting around you right now. Very little in common, but the gospel. The gospel is what brings us together in Christ. Unity in the church is so important that Jesus died for it. Now, in the next few minutes, before we're done, I want to give you some handles, some things that you can leave with that are practical, that will help you build unity, uh, that will help you agree or disagree and disagree agreeably. And all these things are, are given to you as tools with the intent that you can use them, again, in just about every area of life. I've probably heard about a million sermons on unity since I was brought to church a few days after I was born. Now, a million is probably an exaggeration. I told you I would warn you when I'm exaggerating, but it's close. I've probably preached a half million messages on unity. And this morning's message isn't to somehow say, why can't we all just get along? Let's just set our, our, our ideas aside and let's just get along for the sake of getting along. That's not this kind of message. But what I wanna do is give you some handles, some concrete objective truth and steps, practical application that you can live out in your life. But before we do that, I wanna give you some context. What is it that's taking place in Romans chapter 14 and 15? Well, we'll ask, what was the big question in the early New Testament church? The big question was this, how can the church hold together when Christians are so different from each other? How can the church hold together when we're so different? What was taking place in this? Paul writes to the letter to the church at Rome where Jesus' followers were having disagreements over what food to eat or abstain from eating. Some who said it's okay to eat meat offered to idols while others were saying it's not okay to eat meat offered to idols. They were disagreeing about particular holidays that some people thought should be honored and celebrated, but other people didn't. There was much division in the first century over things like what people should eat, what people should drink, and what they should celebrate. Paul labels some as strong. He said the strong believers were the ones that were able to participate in certain things and weren't easily offended by those who disagreed with them. But the weaker believers were those who always felt like they should limit their liberty in every area. And Paul said, hey, this is great. You have two different opinions. But the problem came in when those two opinions faced off and one person said, you need to see it and say it exactly like I see it and say it. You find later in the New Testament, you get into Galatians, Ephesians, First and Second Timothy, Titus, the problem even escalated. There were members of the church coming to the pastors, telling the pastors that you need to preach it and teach it exactly like I see it. That's one of the contexts behind First and Second Timothy. And so the big question in the early church is how can we hold together when we're so different? Here was, here's the answer that Paul didn't give. This wasn't the answer. God's solution was not be in different churches. Be in different churches. God didn't say we need a church for the Jews and we need a church for the Gentiles. Uh, we need a church for the vegetarians and the meat eaters. Uh, we need a church for the wine, those who enjoy wine and those who are teetotalers. We need, a choice, we need a church for those who believe it's okay to sell raffle tickets and those who don't believe it's okay to sell raffle tickets. He, he didn't say that. 
But instead, he gives very practical solution that all falls under this truth. What is God's big picture solution? Build unity around Jesus. Build unity around Jesus. So how do we do that? Number one, number one, when God's word speaks clearly and essentially about an issue, obey and emphasize the word. When God's word speaks clearly and essentially about an issue, obey and emphasize the word. We call this the Bible, but if also we could call this God's specific revelation. God has revealed himself in creation generally, but specifically if we want to know God, we have a copy in our Bible or in our phone of God's word. Romans 15, four says, for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us. Interestingly, Jesus taught that some doctrines carry more weight than others, clearly indicating that there's a hierarchy of doctrinal significance. Doctrines plainly identified by scripture as fundamental or essential include those required for saving faith, those closely connected to the gospel, and those we are forbidden to deny under the threat of condemnation. So what I'm about to propose is that there are some doctrines more important than others. Now, when I first heard this, I was like, no, nah, there's no way. That's all the Bible is equally important. There's no part of the Bible that's more important than the other. Now, it is true that every part of the Bible is equally inspired and there's no part of the Bible more inspired than other, but is it true that God wants us to emphasize some parts of the Bible more than others? Let's go to Jesus and see what Jesus said. Matthew 23. Matthew 23, Jesus said, "'Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, "'you hypocrites. "'You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, "'but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, "'justice, mercy, and faithfulness.'" Now, in this particular context, he wasn't saying that you Pharisees have added to the word of God. He's going to say that later. In this verse, he is saying, you're doing what you should do. You're, you're keeping the word of God. They were under the old covenant, the Old Testament, which we are no longer, we're no longer under the old covenant. We are now new covenant believers. So that's why we emphasize the new covenant, but we learn principles from the old covenant. But at this time, they were still under the old covenant. And Jesus said, Remember the most important matters of the old covenant, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Let's go to Paul, 1 Corinthians 15. Paul, do you think there are some parts of the Bible we should emphasize more than others? Paul says, for what I have received, I passed on to you of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised the third day according to the scriptures. So I'll ask you this. Do the, does the Bible have anything to say about angels and demons? Does the Bible say anything about angels and demons? Absolutely. The Bible says a lot about angels and demons. But should we as a church emphasize and should I teach on Sunday as much every Sunday about angels and demons as I emphasize the gospel every Sunday? Do those deserve equal emphases? I would say according to 1 Corinthians 15, the answer is no. There are some things that are of first 
importance. And so we're gonna talk about some of those things that the church has valued for 2,000 years. Deep truths like why next week, why we know the Bible is God's word. We're gonna talk about the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, creation, angels and demons, humanity, the fall and effects of sin, salvation, the doctrine of the church, the doctrine of last things, biblical sexuality and marriage. We're gonna look at what the scriptures plainly teach and what they don't teach. But back to number one, when God's word speaks clearly and essentially about an issue, Obey and emphasize the word. Number two, how do we build unity as a church around Jesus? Practically. Number two, when the word of God does not speak clearly and essentially about an issue, do and believe what you think best honors Jesus. Do and believe what you think best honors Jesus. Notice verse five of Romans 14. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and give thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, ourselves alone, and none of us dies to ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. As it is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me and every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. What do we do when God's word doesn't speak clearly on an issue? Well, we start by doing what we think best honors Jesus. Now, according to what we just read, God says, have your opinions. If I were writing the Bible, which you're thankful I'm not, but if I were writing the Bible, I would have said, leave all your opinions at the door. Check all your opinions. Don't have any opinions. Only emphasize what is clearly emphasized in scripture and don't have any other opinions or preferences outside of that. To me, that just makes sense. The problem is I don't even live that. And you don't live that. No person truly lives that. God says in what we just read, Don't lay down your opinions. God said, have your opinions. But make sure that you personally are doing what you believe best honors Jesus. Be convinced that it honors the Lord. Why do we have freedom to do that? Well, we have freedom to do that about things that aren't clearly, dogmatically clear-cut in Scripture because of all the other things we're emphasizing. If we're truly agreeing and emphasizing on what the church has agreed and emphasized for 2,000 years, then we understand there's some leeway. Two people aren't going to agree on everything. So we personally can do what best honors Jesus. But number three, when others in the church have different convictions or preferences on issues that are not clearly and essentially addressed in God's word, 
humbly love and receive them with open arms, not requiring agreement. What do we do when we're around other people who have different opinions? Humbly and receive them with open arms, not requiring agreement. You say, now, Pastor Matt, that sounds a little wishy-washy. Let's let the scriptures speak for themselves. Romans 14, one through four. Accept the one whose faith is weak. If you have a, a hard copy of a Bible, you can underline the word accept because we're gonna see it again in a moment. Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. Again, this is not a vegetarian issue. This is a religious issue. If we really knew what was going on in the church at Rome, we would think their issues are weird. And if they knew what kind of stuff we wrestled with, they would think we're weird. And we may be. Verse continues. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does. For God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall. And they will stand for the Lord is able to make them stand. When an issue, number three, is a matter of personal preference or has various, various differences of convictions or preferences on issues not clearly and essentially addressed in God's word, humbly love and receive them with open arms. There is a saying that our board here at Bible Center has really wrapped its, its heart around here lately. And we don't know who the author is. Some say it's Augustine, but we know it's at least a thousand years old, translated in different languages. But here's how the saying goes. In matters, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. In essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. So let's really bring it down to where the rubber meets the road. Right now, you have people sitting near you. You've had people sitting near you, maybe even at home where you are, or last time you were here in person. There have been people sitting near you in church that have completely different opinions than you do about some areas that you are very passionate about. Do you know right now, right now, I see some elbows being, being hit. Do you, do you know right now in this congregation, there are people who have different school choice than you do? Right now, there are people in this church who have different opinions on COVID-19 than you do. There are people in this church who believe differently about whether or not it's okay to drink wine or not drink wine, about playing poker or not playing poker, about experience. There's people sitting near you that have experienced a different form of baptism even since they've been born again. Believers' baptism. There's multitude of different ways that it's done, even around Appalachia. There are people in this room who believe differently than you about the timing of the end times. There's people in this room who believe differently than you about the age of the earth. There are people in this room who are gonna vote for a different president than you vote for. You're like, Pastor Matt, what kind of church, what kind of church is this? Well, hopefully it's a gospel-centered church not a church centered on preferences and opinions. Are you okay with somebody attending this church with different preferences and opinions than you? 
I hope you are. Because if you're a Christian, this is just practice for heaven. You're going to have to get along with them for eternity. So you might as well go ahead and start now. But God invites us when others in the church have different convictions or preferences on issues that aren't clear in scripture, humbly and lovingly receive them with open arms, not requiring agreement. Think about the story of the prodigal son and how his father received him with open arms. What would it look like for us to receive people into our church, gospel-loving people like that, and not requiring agreement on issues the church hasn't agreed upon in 2,000 years. You say, Matt, if that happened in a church, there probably would be revival. That's what we're praying for. That's what we're praying for. Number four, refuse to be that Christian who dies on the hill, which the church hasn't been willing to die for 2,000 years. Refuse to be that Christian. I have an older cousin. I didn't, my older brother went to heaven. Uh, he had cancer. I never got to meet my older brother. But I had an older cousin that was like an older brother. And he would continually tell me, Matt, don't be that guy. Like, don't, you don't want to be that guy. So I'm going to go out and play basketball. Matt, don't be that guy. So I'm encouraging you, don't be that Christian who constantly is dying on hills the Bible doesn't expect you to die on. Look with me at the scriptures. Let's let the Bible speak for itself. 1 Timothy 1, verse 3. I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer. We all would agree with that, right? But typically, it's not the false doctrine that gets churches like ours. People come in and say, I don't believe Jesus is God. We're not very likely to give them a platform. But it's not just the false doctrines that were hurting the church at Ephesus. No, Paul writes to Pastor Timothy and he says, and, or any longer, or devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These are the things that we have to watch out for. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. Over and over again, he says this in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy We'd be here till two o'clock if we read all the verses. But look with me in 2 Timothy chapter two. He says something similar. He said, Timothy, Timothy's getting, growing weary of this. It gets tiring. It gets tiring. People elevating their preferences to the authority of the scriptures. And Paul writes to Timothy, he says, Timothy, keep reminding, keep at it, don't quit. Keep reminding God's people of these things. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. It is of no value. It only ruins those who listen. In other words, these kind of people have a way of getting a little following together and it just ruins families. It just ruins them. He says, it's of no value. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who, who rightly divides or correctly handles the word of truth. Avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. 
Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have departed from the truth. And because I believe this is our issue, one more short verse, 2 Timothy 2.23, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. I've only been at this 18 years, but in 18 years, I very seldom see a true, not it's happened, but very seldom see a true Christian leave the faith or leave the community of believers because they no longer believe God's word is God's word. Very seldom do I see someone leave the faith because they no longer believe Jesus is God. It happens, but in our context, it's very rare. But I'll tell you what, I, what I've seen, what I've observed. I've watched Christians fight incessantly over trying to reconcile the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. And I've watched them almost go to fisticuffs over that. Well, is it more the sovereignty of God? Is it more the responsibility of man? But C.H. Spurgeon said, you don't need to reconcile friends. We don't understand how it works together. It just does. I've seen Christians argue over the number of dispensations. You say, dispo, what? what is a dispensation? If you don't know, don't worry about it. What the, what the little horn represents in the book of Revelation. I have seen Christians get red in the face and almost fight over how the dinosaurs died out. You're like, Matt, you're making this up. No, I put some of the pastors here are like, no, he's not. No, he's not. We all know how the dinosaurs died out anyway. They didn't set their alarm for Noah's Ark. I thought that was gonna be funnier than it really was. It actually makes me wonder though, if the core problem at our heart is not disunity. Please hear me. I wanna say this as humbly as I can. We're almost done. I wonder if the core problem is not disunity but idolatry. Here's why I ask that. Some people in the church at Rome were prone to exalt their opinion to the level of that which is clear and essential in God's word. And so we need to ask ourselves this question. I need to ask myself this question. Have we at any point let our opinions become idols in the church in such a way that we love our opinions so much that we'll die on that hill? How do we build unity around Jesus, refuse to be the Christian who dies on the hill, which Christians haven't died for in 2,000 years? Occasionally, something will crop up, opinions that have only been around 50 years or 100 years. And I love what D.L. Moody said about it. That's where Pastor Ryan went, Moody Bible Institute. D.L. Moody said, if it's new, it isn't true. And if it's true, it isn't new. May God help us to remember that. Number five, and lastly, how do we build unity around Jesus? Make every effort to preserve peace and unity in Jesus's family. It takes work. It takes work. Notice verse 19. Verse 19 says, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. Let us make every effort to do it. In other words, take the previous four things and determine in your heart that you're gonna make every effort to make them true. I need help, you need help, we're all on the journey. Let me invite you, if you're new to Bible Center, I wanna invite you to our membership weekend. We have a membership weekend coming up and you'll hear more about this. If you wanna really dive in with our church family and become a part, a permanent part of our church family, will you consider membership weekend? Uh, we're actually gonna do it a little differently this time. It's gonna be Friday night is online. 
or you can come Saturday in person. It's no longer both. You can come to either or, Friday night online, or you can attend Saturday. I would invite you to become a part of Bible Center, know more about why we believe what we believe and how you can jump in. We do desire to build unity around the gospel. Why do we desire this? Why is it so important? Well, the answer is simple. Our mission depends on it. Our mission depends on it. When you finish First Romans chapter 14 and 15, Paul says in verse seven of chapter 15, he said, our mission is to praise God. And then he says in verse 13, our mission is to proclaim the gospel, to overflow and proclaim the gospel. You say, Pastor Matt, which is it? Is our mission to glorify God or is it to proclaim the gospel? The answer is yes. Our mission is to glorify God by making disciples who make disciples who love Jesus. We want to do both. But I would say of all the things that could destroy our mission, disunity would be the number one thing. Let me invite you to commit this morning that you will do everything in your power to make much of the gospel. You'll make everything in your power to check your preferences at the door if, if you're not right, you will be willing to learn from others who have truth to speak into your life. But when it comes to the gospel, that's the only thing you're going to hang on to. Let me commit you to be, challenge you to be that kind of Christian. You say, Matt, why? Why are we making such a big deal of this? Why this sermon? And the answer is simple. Because unity in the church is so important that Jesus died for it. Let me pray and ask God to make it so in our hearts. Father, thank you for the truths of your word and what we're gonna hear over the next six months. I pray that you would take us back to the fundamentals of the faith, that we would know what we believe and we would know why we believe them. Help us to equip a whole generation of high school students, middle school students, college students to go out into the world and give an answer of the hope that's in, inside them. Lord, we need your help. Lord, forgive us where we've contributed to disunity. Lord, I feel like every day in my heart, I feel it welling up, something welling up in my heart, an email, a text, a phone call. Lord, I'm just so prone to this. Transform me, a pastor, transform me. God, transform our church. Help us pursue unity at all costs, to speak truth in love, to learn, to listen, and help us to make much of Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. For more information, visit us at BibleCenterChurch.com or check us out on social media. You can also join us in person for services on Thursday at 7 p.m. or Sundays at 9 and 11 a.m.